Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. George Remus was on top of the world. Here he was, a German immigrant who had started life poor. Now, at the start of the 1920s, one of the richest men in America. Not only that, but he was married to the love of his life, a woman he called the apple of both his eyes. He told anyone who would listen that Emma Jean, nay Brown, was everything he'd ever dreamed of in a woman. She was smart, savvy, beautiful, trustworthy. They'd met in a Chicago deli where she worked to support her daughter, Ruth. By then, George was a well-to-do lawyer, having already worked his way through pharmacy and then medical school. He hired Imogene to work in his law office, and one thing led to another. Before he knew it, he was divorcing his first wife and remarrying the raven-haired beauty he'd fallen so hard for. Life was good. To celebrate that good life, George and Imogene threw a New Year's party at the end of 1921. By then, they'd moved to Cincinnati, where they'd built a gorgeous mansion with a jaw-dropping pool George christened the Imogene Baths. Guests found $1,000 bills hidden beneath their dinner plates and went home with gifts of diamond pins and even cars. It must have felt unbelievable to George which is maybe why he began routinely referring to himself in the third person, like when he told reporters, quote, George Remus has more at stake than anyone else. George Remus knows law. George Remus probably could have had high political office for himself, end quote. It's almost as if he couldn't speak of himself in the first person because his fate and fortunes had so drastically turned, it didn't feel real. Or maybe it was because he always knew that his good fortune was fleeting, because he'd made all that money illegally. George Remus was known as the king of the bootleggers, and his meteoric rise and spectacular fall from grace led to multiple criminal cases and some of the most outrageous headlines of the 20th century. It's amazing how much crime and ill-advised law can cause. It's been a recurring theme in cases I've researched from, oh, right about 100 years ago. The federal government outlawed booze, ineffectively, of course. And because so many people thought that law was dumb as hell, tons of them ignored it. The hypocrisy was stifling. You had police accepting graft payments to protect bootleggers, politicians serving alcohol at parties just hours after denouncing alcohol during campaign speeches, countless cities quit enforcing the law altogether because the loss of tax revenue from alcohol sales left their departments woefully underfunded. Plus, it's hard to get your cops to arrest criminals when those criminals are slipping your cops a year's salary at a time to look the other way. Few prohibition tales underscore how nuts the era was better than the case of George Remus. 
The start of his tale was rightly referred to a century ago as a rags-to-riches story. He'd been born in Berlin on November 14, 1874. Or maybe it was 1876. At latest, 1878. He tended to fudge the year, depending on who was asking for it. As the story unfolds, you'll learn he might not be the most reliable narrator we've ever encountered. Regardless, we know he was still young when he came with his father and mother to America, thanks to a passenger list documenting his arrival in New York on June 15, 1882. For what it's worth, it appears his mom Marie told officials George was four at the time, which would mean he was born in 1878. So I'll use that as a goalpost when referencing his age, but no, it's a give-or-take situation. Now, at first, Marie, her husband Frank, and their two kids, George and Frances, a girl, settled in Baltimore and then in Milwaukee. Both stays were brief, but then the family finally put down roots in Chicago. Frank got work in a lumberyard, and Marie gave birth to her youngest boy, Herman. Unfortunately for George, his dad liked to drink. And Remus's father, in his own words, was a, a, quote, mean and abusive alcoholic. Uh, Remus had to quit school at age 13 to start supporting his family. His father could no longer work. This is author Karen Abbott giving a talk to Museums on the Green about her book, The Ghosts of Eden Park. The reason Frank Remus could no longer work is because he developed rheumatism, an autoimmune disease. So George stepped up to take care of the family, getting a job in his uncle's pharmacy in Chicago. And he really devoted himself to this job. He called himself a druggist devil boy. Uh, Remus had quite a way with words. George not only worked at this pharmacy, but he even slept on a cot in the back room, Abbott said, as a way to avoid his father's abusive rages. At first, he did apprenticeship-type work for his uncle. He, he eventually did become a pharmacist, took over his uncle's pharmacies. He made his, he made his clients, by the way, call him Dr. Remus. Uh, he was not a doctor. Um, but while he was working at his pharmacy, he also studied law late at night. George had big dreams. Plenty of people would have reached the level of pharmacist and been satisfied. I mean, it was decent, respectable work, and you could raise a family on the pay. But that wasn't enough for George. He wanted to become a lawyer. And Remus did pass the Illinois bar. That was in 1904, according to the bench and bar of Illinois from 1920. And he quickly made a name for himself being a uh, Chicago defense attorney and uh, sort of became known for his courtroom antics. Antics is putting it mildly. This guy was a straight-up showboat. He would scream and cry and tear at his hair. He delivered these opening and closing statements that were more like theatrical monologues than typical attorney talk. He would attack opposing counsel and sort of end up in a tangle of limbs on the courtroom floor. His many admirers called him the Napoleon of the Chicago Bar, uh, but he had just as many detractors, and they called him the weeping and crying Remus. Here's the quick prohibition synopsis. The 18th Amendment, passed in both chambers of the U.S. Congress in December 1917, then was ratified a year and change later. It didn't make it illegal to drink booze, but it did make it illegal to manufacture, sell, or transport intoxicating liquors for beverage purposes. But the amendment itself didn't spell out how to enforce what it was demanding. That fell to the Volstead Act, named after one of the main authors of the bill, Congressman Andrew Volstead, who incidentally had a mustache that looked like a hamster. 
It took about 0.2 seconds before people figured out that shutting down distilleries and breweries opened up doors to make tons of untaxed money by making and selling liquor on the sly. There were huge loopholes in the laws that were easily exploitable. For example, you couldn't sell booze as a beverage, but guess what? You could sell it as a medicine. Doctors and pharmacists were happy to prescribe whiskey, gin, brandy, and more to treat dozens of ailments, toothaches, pneumonia, high blood pressure, depression. Also, booze manufactured before prohibition was still obtainable. You just had to figure out how to get your hands on it. Once you did, you were basically in the clear because private ownership and consumption of alcohol weren't illegal federally. Now, George Remus was not a fan of alcohol. He'd seen it make his dad mean as a snake and contribute to his eventual death. So he vowed to never touch the stuff. But he considered that a personal choice, and he had no issues with people who chose to drink the stuff, nor did he balk at defending clients charged with violating the Volstead Act. He thought the law was dumb and hypocritical, and he happily said so in court. He also noticed something universal about all of these Volstead clients. And these men were making really easy money. Remus was constantly amazed with the ease which with they would pay their fines, slap down a couple hundred dollars on his desk, they would pay the fine, and they would be back doing their uh, conducting their bootleggers business with really no interruption. Remus was a smart guy with a background in pharmaceuticals and the law, so he used that knowledge to scour the Volstead Act looking for loopholes and he quickly identified the whole medicinal purposes one I mentioned earlier. Now, nobody was using alcohol for medicinal purposes. Um, It was quite a a joke. Uh, Remus himself, in a customary flourish of language, called it the greatest comedy, the greatest perversion of justice that I have ever known of any civilized country in the world. By the time Remus spotted this loophole, he'd already met Imogene, who'd divorced her first husband, Albert Holmes. Imogene and Albert had one child together, a girl named Ruth. George had married his first wife, Lillian Clough, in 1899, and they also had a daughter, this one named Romola, born in 1900. By 1915, however, things with George and Lillian had gotten ugly. She actually filed a divorce complaint where, on the official complaint, she said that Remus, quote, had a habit of coming home early in the morning. That was the actual language on a 1915 divorce uh, filing. It probably didn't help things that George had fallen madly in love with Imogene, with whom he entrusted a secret. He said he had found a way to make a stupid amount of money off of prohibition. He sought her advice. He thought she was a very smart woman. And he gave her many nicknames. And his first and most important nickname for her was, quote, the prime minister, which sort of gives you an idea of of the respect that Remus had for her ideas and her vision and how she might contribute to his bootlegging empire. Imogene assured him she would help him every step of the way. With her by his side, George quit his Chicago law practice and decided he would make a fortune in bootlegging. Then they got to work. If you know anything about the Prohibition mobster days, you probably know that Chicago had its fair share of bootleggers. After all, that's where Al Capone co-founded the Chicago Outfit, a crime syndicate that attained notoriety for illegally supplying alcohol to seemingly everyone. But George Remus decided that Chicago wasn't where he wanted to set up shop. 
Instead, he did some research and realized that 80% of the country's pre-prohibition bonded whiskey was located within a 300-mile radius of Cincinnati, Ohio. I had no idea what bonded meant in this context before researching this story. So in case it sounds as goofy to you as it did to me, bottled in bond is a label for distilled beverages made in America according to a set of legal regulations. If you buy bonded liquor, it's sort of like knowing you're getting a Chanel purse instead of a knockoff. Remus had no intention of making liquor. That was never his plan. He was only going to sell the good stuff, the bonded stuff, the stuff that would make him a millionaire. So moving to Cincinnati was a strategic choice. He and Imogene got married and bought a fabulous brick house. This was in Price Hill, Cincinnati, which at the time was the fanciest, the most lavish, um, wealthiest neighborhood in Cincinnati. And as a gift for his new bride, George Remus put the deed in Imogene's name. Here's how his bootlegging operation worked. He started a drug company, a wholesaler to drug stores. And then he would send his trucks out. His own men would hijack those trucks and put it into the illegal liquor trade. That's writer Daniel Okrent speaking in a PBS documentary about prohibition. What Remus created was both clever and intricate. He set up this bogus drug company based in Kentucky, and then he bought a bunch of distilleries, Fleischmann, Edgewood, Pogue, Hill & Hill, Buying those up gave him access to millions of gallons of liquor stored in them that had been legally manufactured before Prohibition. From PBS again. He created his own trucking firm, the American Transportation Company, to carry whiskey to his distribution center, an isolated 50-acre Ohio farm hidden in a hollow whose house, barns, and outhouses could hold tens of thousands of cases of whiskey. The farm had just one road leading in and out, so Remus hired gunmen to monitor every inch of that road. It's really quite genius, though not without risk. Knowing that he was working in a business that attracted folks of questionable morals, Remus did more than pay his workers well. He treated them well. He got them gifts. He supplied them with pints. He made sure they weren't overworked and got plenty of rest. I've argued for this approach to worker treatment my whole life. If you're good to folks, they'll go the extra mile for you and feel too loyal to stab you in the back. And for the most part, this worked out well for Remus. Within a year, he owned about one-third of all alcohol in the nation. Things were working out so well, in fact, that he got really comfortable in his belief that his people would protect him. He would always get tipped off when someone heard that Prohibition police were sniffing around Remus's Ohio farm, which, by the way, he nicknamed Death Valley. This is one of my favorite actors, Paul Giamatti, reading quotes of Remus's regarding his Death Valley customers. They came from all over the country and included the fashionable clubman, hotel keeper, the whiskey jobber, the petty bootlegger. They were as anxious to buy as I was to sell, and there was never a day that the demand was not 70% greater than the supply. The sales were, of course, cash only, and would easily be in the tens of thousands of dollars per day, sometimes nearing $80,000. In one day, in 1920, and that's a decent salary today, but if you adjust for inflation, it's the equivalent of $1.1 million now. A million dollars a day, tax-free, since criminals don't tend to file 1099s and such. 
Granted, there were a lot of overhead expenses. All those gunmen and drivers, distilleries and trucks. And bookkeeping was hard, too, because, of course, guys like Remus tried to spread his dough around town so that he wouldn't be leveled by any one raid. It was a massive operation, and Remus was great at it, as he liked to say himself, though in the third person for some reason. Remus was in the whiskey business, and Remus was the biggest man in the business. Cincinnati was the American mecca for good liquor, and America had to come to Remus to get it. In no time, Remus had 3,000 workers working three shifts a day, Not only that, but... He paid off an army of local, state, and federal officials. I went on the theory that every man has a price, he said. And I could afford to pay it. Those graft payouts were about more than being tipped off to investigators. To withdraw the whiskey from the distilleries he'd bought, Remus needed thousands of government permits, and to get those, he turned to a guy named Jess Smith. Smith had a pudgy, round face accentuated with small, round Harold Lloyd glasses. And while he looked rather bland on the whole, he was surprisingly influential. That's because he was friends with Warren G. Harding, Ohio senator turned U.S. president. Smith also worked as chief advisor for Harry Doherty, another Ohio native and attorney who was appointed by his buddy Harding as U.S. attorney general in 1921. And seriously, the corruption in this era makes you think, if nothing else. Anyway, Jess Smith agreed to help Remus get his needed permits for a price. Smith was blunt. Remus could have all the signed federal withdrawal permits he wanted for $2.50 per case. Smith also promised that for another $50,000, Remus could be protected from punishment. Even if he were arrested and indicted, he would never have to go to jail. Remus paid him on the spot in $1,000 bills. These withdrawal permits were a big deal. They were basically the paperwork that allowed someone to withdraw alcohol from a distillery. By giving Remus authentic government withdrawal permits, Jess Smith was ensuring Remus could get his whiskey out of the warehouse without worrying about his certificates looking like forgeries, etc. It was always better to have government withdrawal permits. And for these services, Remus paid him handsomely in protection payments to Jess Smith uh, that were filtered out throughout the federal government. In her book, Ghosts of Eden Park, Karen Abbott made a point to highlight the way Remus spoke, which was always with flourish and far more verbose than necessary. You can hear that in Paul Giamatti's performance. You must understand that I was spending much time on the road. Today, I could be in New York, opening a new drug company, conferring with certain gentlemen, if I may call them so, on matters pertaining to the conduct of our business without interference from the government. On the train between cities, I was busy studying the new prohibition regulations and devising means to circumvent them as fast as they were issued. You will pardon me for saying that it was a very strenuous life. Strenuous, sure, but it was also gilded. He and Imogene bought a stately brick mansion in Cincinnati's Price Hill neighborhood and immediately set out to renovate it and make it their own. It became the site of legendarily extravagant parties, including the New Year's party mentioned in the intro. 
Imogene designed the invitations for that one herself. These invitations did go out to all of high society. Author Abbott again. Politicians, judges, lawyers, uh, businessmen, uh, robber barons, uh, the Tafts, etc. All of the important families that Remus wanted to impress. Basically, the mansion represented George and Imogene's uh, desire to be accepted by society. You know, they both had come from very poor backgrounds, had hard scrabble childhoods, and this was finally saying, you know, we arrived. We arrived, and we're just as valid and and respectable as anybody with old money. If you're curious what that high pitched squeal is in the background there, so was I. It's Abbott's parrot chiming in. The mansion itself was stunning, but the piece de resistance of the place wasn't the house. One of the highlights of this party was the unveiling of Remus's swimming pool. It was a heated pool, which as you can imagine for 1921 was pretty much unheard of. They also had a variety of baths, uh, needle baths, including electric baths, which I had to look up what electric baths were, but apparently they were an early version of a tanning bed. Uh, heated by incandescent lights and said to make the user frisky. This Greco-Roman pool was a thing to behold. It was housed in its own building, surrounded by lush and exotic plants. The price tag was about $175,000, which again is hefty even by today's standards, but back then was the equivalent of $2 million plus. For the party, the Remuses hired water nymphs to perform synchronized swimming routines. Ruth, Imogene's 14-year-old daughter, whom George had adopted as his own, appeared at the stroke of midnight and declared herself a spirit of the new year. Imogene Remus, not to be outdone, put on this daring one-piece and executed a perfect dive. Life was pretty sweet, but that was all about to come crashing down. The 18th Amendment was notoriously unpopular, but that doesn't mean everyone hated it. That's far from true. There's a reason the thing passed. To fully get that, let's put it into context. The Great War, which we would later dub World War I, was ending, and life at home was changing fast. You had women voting and chopping their hair off, and cars were overtaking the land. Suddenly, people were drinking and driving. People were dying in the streets. It's hard to imagine now, but when cars first came, there weren't traffic laws, no stop signs or driver's education or lane lines or street lights or brake lights or driver's licenses or speed limits. You know how lawmakers have been slow to weigh in on cybercrime and cryptocurrency? Well, cars were that way once upon a time. By 1920, some laws were in place, but they were pretty patchwork. Now, of course, cars weren't the only reason the anti-alcohol movement had gained such momentum. Really, the temperance movement had been a powerful one since the 1830s. The Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Anti-Saloon League were two of many groups that joined forces to relentlessly lobby local, state, and federal lawmakers to put a cork in things. See what I did there? Teetotalers argued that drinking was immoral that it fueled society's ills and threatened America's success. But the car situation is one of the few data-driven arguments that prohibition backers could use. In 1905, 252 motor vehicle deaths were tallied nationwide. 14 years later, in 1919, the year Congress overrode President Woodrow Wilson's veto and ratified the 18th Amendment, there were nearly 11,000. That's a huge jump in deaths per capita, from 0.3 deaths per 100,000 residents to more than 10. 
a lot of those deaths weren't folks in cars either. Early on, pedestrians, especially children, made up big chunks of the dead. Here's a particularly heartbreaking passage from a 2015 Detroit News retrospective. Quote, The most appalling tragedies were the number of children struck and killed by autos as they played in the street, many times in front of their own homes. In the 1920s, 60% of automobile fatalities nationwide were children under age 9. One gruesome Detroit article described an Italian family whose 18-month-old son was hit and wedged in the wheel of a car as the hysterical father and police pried out the child's dead body. The mother went into the house and committed suicide. End quote. Now, nobody could argue that alcohol was to blame for all of those deaths, but alcohol was one variable that teetotalers figured they could remove from the equation. In 1919, the movement succeeded, and America launched what some called the noble experiment of prohibition. The job of enforcing this experiment fell to the United States Assistant Attorney General, a woman by the name of Mabel Walker Willebrand. It's kind of amazing to think that when Willebrand got her post, it had only been a year since she had gotten the right to vote. So you can imagine that she took her job very seriously. She once wrote, A boy must do the job well and develop personality. A girl must do the job well and develop personality. Plus, break down skepticism about her ability, walk the tightrope of sexlessness without loss of her essential charm, and make the hard choice between giving up children and home life in order to advance or having them in the face of increased prejudice. No pressure, right? She was the highest ranking woman in America. Ironically, she wasn't a teetotaler like George Remus. Before Prohibition, she'd have a drink here and there, but once it was the law of the land, she took her job to enforce it very seriously. To others, chagrin. And it's pretty certain that her crooked bosses in the White House and at the Justice Department, who were all in bed with bootleggers and other various crooked people, thought, you know, let's put the little lady in charge. She's going to be overwhelmed. She's not gonna quite know what she's doing. And we're gonna be able to continue our cozy relationship with the bootleggers. So what happens, uh, Mabel Walker Willenbrand takes her oath of office in September of 1921 and immediately, to their surprise, begins kicking some butt. Soon after George Remus's notorious New Year's party, Willebrandt received a letter from a Cincinnati resident saying, hey, there's a guy right in town who's completely flouting the law and he's making mad money doing it. He's got 40 cars and, quote, dispenses enough liquor from his drug companies to meet the prescriptions of physicians of the whole central United States, end quote. Willebrandt started a file on Remus, who by this point owned 35 percent of all the alcohol in the nation. She turned to a Department of Justice agent named Franklin Dodge to help her out. He was pedigreed. He was from a very important Michigan family. His father was a very prominent politician there for decades, uh, an established lawyer. The family was very well respected. Willebrandt saw something special in Dodge. He was willing to go undercover. He was willing to employ unorthodox methods to get the information she needed. He was willing to take chances. And she decided that she was going to trust him to be her ace. She called him her ace pro agent. So she sent him to Cincinnati to get the goods on George Remus. Meanwhile, Remus was far from worried. He'd spent a quarter mil buying the protection of his political fixer, Jess Smith, who worked inside of Willebrandt's office. He was paying local politicians off left and right. 
Most were thrilled to be bought. Remus once said, A few men have tried to corner the wheat market, only to find that there is too much wheat in the world. I tried to corner the graft market, but I learned that there isn't enough money in the world to buy up all the public officials who demand a share in the graft. And yet, not everyone had a price, as Remus learned the hard way. He had bought the Squibb Distillery in Lawrenceburg, Indiana, and found himself operating in the jurisdiction of a capable and incorruptible prohibition director, Bert G. Morgan, whom Remus would later come to call the stumbling block of the Middle West. Morgan's men had seized some trucks and cars filled with bottles of booze wrapped in Cincinnati newspapers. The trail led to Remus's headquarters at the Death Valley Farm. One night, Remus called to check on things and heard from one of his workers that everything was A-OK. And by the way, the place is dry right now because we're out of stock and nothing's coming in for a few days. Soon after, Remus got word from one of his informants that some agents were zeroing in on his farm. Remus thought this was great timing. The farm was dry. He didn't pass along the warning he'd heard because he saw no need. But he'd gotten too cocky and too trusting. When agents arrived at the farm, the place wasn't dry at all. Morgan's agents arrested everyone and confiscated a small arsenal of weapons, $40,000 worth of alcohol, and Remus's business records as well. Still, Remus wasn't worried. People, politicians, were making serious money off of him. So of course the people on his payroll would protect him. Even after Remus himself was arrested, he didn't fret. He'd been smart, after all, putting most of his assets, including his beloved mansion, in Imogene's name. He was sure he would be fine. So sure, in fact, that he instructed the others who'd been arrested alongside him not to bother putting up much of a defense. This despite the fact that they literally faced thousands of counts of violating the Volstead Act. Remus assured them he had greased the right palms. These charges would just, poof, disappear. His confidence had to have been boosted, too, by the fact that the public was largely on his side. Bob Batchelor, author of The Bourbon King. He was incredibly charismatic, and he would manipulate the media. He would bring reporters to his mansion in Price Hill, and he would wine them and dine them, and then they would tell the story that Remus wanted to tell them. So he became, not only because he was generous to poor people, but also because he manipulated the media, he was seen almost as a folk hero. So no matter what he did, People responded to him in a really positive way. But the trial went nothing like Remus expected. The agents who had raided the farm had so much evidence, not just the booze, but the business records. The jury found him guilty in less than two hours. He was sentenced to two years in federal prison. Absolutely shocked by this turn of events, he confronted Jess Smith while he was out on bail appealing the verdict. Smith who at this point had taken hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes from Remus to obtain his liquor clearances, again assured him, don't worry, you'll never spend a night behind bars. You're going to be pardoned. Everything will be fine. Remus, rattled but still trusting, gave Smith another $30,000 as insurance. A few weeks later, someone handed Remus a newspaper. 
Jess Smith had shot himself in the bedroom of his suite at the Wardman Park Hotel in Washington. He had been named in an investigation of corruption in the old Harding administration. Remus's appeal failed. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear his case. He couldn't avoid it. He was headed to prison. To safeguard his fortune, he turned everything over to Imogene, making her his power of attorney. In all the pain and humiliation of the thing, my one consolation was my wife. She had been my partner in everything. She knew the inside of all my deals. She kept books on transactions which could not be entrusted to the office force. There was nobody in the world whom I trusted so fully. We agreed that when my term was out, we would take a long trip around the world and then settle down where the disgrace would not follow us. Remus's stint as the bootleg king was coming to a close, but he was determined to make the best of things. He bribed prison guards and other officials to make life in prison as pleasant as he could. He paid the deputy warden to give him a so-called soft job. He paid the chaplain $2,000 for special privileges, too. Imogene came and went as she pleased. She brought George an upgraded mattress and linens. She cleaned his cell for him, scrubbing the floor on her hands and knees. Several of the people on Remus's payroll tried to convince Mabel Walker Willebrand, the assistant attorney general, to go easy on the fellow. But she wouldn't. Nailing him was one of her first high-profile wins, and it gave her the confidence to keep toppling other bootleggers, too. For example, she sent Franklin Dodge to Savannah, Georgia, to build a case against a ring nicknamed the Savannah Four, headed by bootlegger William Harr. So by the end of 1922, things were rough for Remus. He was in prison. His fixer was dead from suicide. His wife was in charge of not just his finances, but his criminal operation. And Willebrandt refused to cut him any slack. Remus knew all this, but what he didn't know was that word had reached Willebrandt that he was buying favors even in prison, prompting her to send Franklin Dodge to check on things. And that decision set off a chain of events that led to one of the most shocking murders in Cincinnati history, which we'll talk about next episode. To research this story, I did the usual newspaper archive dives, checked census and law license data, and, crucially, read Karen Abbott's Ghosts of Eden Park. And sometimes the books I read are dry as hell, but this one was beautifully written. I also recommend the PBS documentary Prohibition, made by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, if only to hear Paul Giamatti's voice. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>